Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined today by Graham Macklin, the author of Failed Führers, A History of Britain's Extreme Right, as well as a co-editor of the Routledge Studies in Fascism and the Far Right book series. Thanks very much for joining us, Graham. No, my pleasure. Thanks for the invite. I have to say, from the niche perspective of people putting together a weekly radio show about fascism, the Routledge Studies in Fascism and the Far Right book series has been invaluable. I think other people find it useful for their own reasons as well. So thank you very much for that. (laughs) No, my pleasure. It's been kind of a lot of fun working on that series with my co-editors. What was the sort of impetus for getting that book series started? What, why did you think it was important that it exist? Well, we put it together in or started talking about it, I guess, five years ago now. Time flies. And we've currently published 44 titles and we've got dozens more in the pipeline at various stages. And I think as sort of historians who shade a little bit into sort of sociology and social movement studies, we were aware that there wasn't really any coherent book series looking specifically at the phenomena. I mean, there's Routledge has got a fantastic sort of political science one, extremism and democracy, but we were just aware that there was a real gap. I suppose. It also came out of our frustration, I suppose, with the, how do I say this, presentism of a lot of work on the extreme right, which takes no real account of the history of these movements, these ideas, and in many cases, the people themselves. So, you know, you're confronted with the idea that everything's new all the time, when actually a lot of these things just have very deep sort of historical roots. And we thought, you know, a book series that ranged quite broadly across countries, regions, ideas, types of organisation, would really help drive forward the research agenda in, in general, really, and, you know, hopefully be of interest, you know, obviously it's a scholarly kind of like a book series, but the fact that it's kind of been of use to a much wider readership's really been quite heartening, and I guess tells us that we would perhaps pick the right moment to launch the book series. In your uh, latest book, Failed Furors, you do review some of the debates that have been going on within scholarship on the question of fascism and also address the question of how do contemporary forms of fascism in the far right relate to historical expressions and even the ways in which fascism can be identified as emerging from earlier ideological and historical trends. So I'm wondering, can you briefly explain your own approach to addressing such questions? Yeah, And approaching so far as I have one, you know, <laughs> I've forever been kind of like critiqued by my colleagues about methodology. Because I sort of, I suppose a lot of it stems from like a gut feeling that obviously a lot of these movements aren't new that in any way, shape or form. The carrier itself might be new and the people might be new, but as a sort of broader political phenomenon, there's very little 
that's new in many of these movements. So you can look at lots of things that have happened over the years, trends that emerge, you know, Holocaust denial, for instance. But, late, you know, they're not necessarily a new phenomenon. They're an expression of a far older kind of history. And I suppose it's born of the idea that the interwar period is sort of frozen in aspic. The idea that had fascism and Nazism not been defeated in 1945, that somehow that politics would have stayed as it was, that it wouldn't have continued to evolve. And so I've always kind of seen a continuity in the movement, which is just as interesting as the change. And in fact, I see the continuity as being far greater in many ways. You know, the change you see is really just out of a way of adapting older ideas to events that have come along and come into their horizon, if you like. I mean, I have noticed in my own research or investigation that it's curious that uh, many of the contemporary fascists and those on the far right themselves try to excavate their histories to rehabilitate or reposition historical figures. So I think that that continuity is something that those on uh, the far right also try to maintain in some way. I mean, some groups are obviously better at it than others, if you like, but some of the sort of more thoughtful kind of guys on the far right definitely have a very keen interest in their own history and how they can kind of like use that history to push their agendas forward. Because obviously the the history of the Third Reich, particularly post-45, is not seen as the most glorious page in humanity's history. And so they've been going back through and mining much earlier ideological traditions that have maybe got pushed out of the way by Hitler. You know, the conservative revolutionaries are a good example of that. Trying to find more acceptable ideological pathways to go forward with, which at the same time still speak to their core agenda. So, you know, they can't get rid of their core ideals like, you know, not any political movement could, but you know they've tried to find a way of refashioning it and drawing upon new inspirations that were perhaps ignored at the time or sidelined and marginalised for different reasons, and to try and use these to say something about the contemporary movement or reach out to particular voters, activists that they wouldn't have otherwise reached with a sort of more hardline kind of Nazi approach, for instance. In your book, you examine the biographies of six key figures from the British far right, and those are quite fascinating. But I guess another dimension that's present in this work and other writings is there's a an emphasis upon the transnational dimension of uh, fascist ideology and movement. Can you talk a little about how that manifests in your study and maybe also in the contemporary context? I suppose what I wanted to do, because I've sort of, yeah, like you say, I've written the book and it's about the history of British fascism told through the story of six principal ideologues. And I took that biographical approach because I thought it was quite useful in showing how these kind of individuals had and the ideas and the movements that they particularly represented showed us broader arc of the extreme right and how it also sort of highlighted particular. Well, I suppose that the, the movement itself was never a homogenous phenomenon. There's always a sort of like the, impre- the impression that the far right is kind of just one thing in terms of people and movements. And it's you know nothing like that, as I'm sure you guys are aware. It's as variegated as the sort of like the left is. But I wanted also, while sort of homing in on those kind of figures, to root them in a broader kind of like cultural and social world and to show how they responded to certain events um, and how the movements themselves were shaped by those kind of superstructures, if you like, but also to put them in a broader historical context, because otherwise you end up writing, I suppose, something more of a sect history. And these kind of guys, all of them, and many others that I didn't discuss, are all rooted in a broader political movement and see themselves as that. And this is the case all the way from 1919 onwards. They see themselves as part of a broader movement or are in some way shaped by a broader movement. You know, they kind of, they respond to what's happening in Germany, either positively or negatively. So there's no way that you can really, I don't think, understand some of these movements without understanding them in that broader transnational context, either sort of, you know, 
ideologically, organisationally, strategically, and they have evolved together, if you like. Again, whether positively or negatively, they don't have to react well to whatever another movement in another country is doing. But there is this connectivity, particularly in the cases I've looked at. There's an Anglo, a very strong Anglo-American dimension, but also, you know, a very strong Anglo-German dimension. But you can sort of find examples pretty much in any country you like. I suppose... Another reason to highlight this was because it's become a bit less so now, but there was a tendency to highlight that the extreme right as a transnational movement is something new. And I've never really felt that to be the case. I don't think history shows it to be the case. I mean, obviously, the development of the internet has kind of accelerated things. The ease at which you can get in touch with other activists, the ease at which you can find materials, ideological tracts, etc., but I don't think it's fundamentally created a different set of processes, if you like. You know, you can find all of the things that they're doing now way back, like decades, decades ago. If we could maybe get it quite specific in terms of transnationalism, uh, I think one of the people you look at in the book is John Tyndall. And I, I seem to recall that when his National Front uh, opened an Australian branch, it caused quite a stir here. But I was wondering, in your research, uh, was there, did you find any evidence that Australian or New Zealand branches of the groups you looked at had any impact whatsoever on uh, the group back in the motherland? Oh, well, that's an interesting question, actually. Yeah, I mean, you know, you had National Front sort of Australian branch. I mean, during the 70s, the, the, the NF had a, a number of groups, you know, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, which had evolved really out of that older network of groups run by A.K. Chesterton, the founder of the National Front, when he was involved leading an organisation called the League of Empire Loyalists. So you had many sort of loyalist groups that were quite strong, particularly in sort of New Zealand, South Africa, Rhodesia, Kenya. And there was an ebb and flow and many of these kind of rose and fall. So it sort of was a kind of Commonwealth-wide network which played into their idea of a revived empire. This would be sort of the base for relaunching Britain's greatness. I don't know the extent to which they had an impact sort of back on the, in, in the motherland, if you like, but they were certainly seen as intrinsic to kind of spreading their kind of message towards sort of you know, white Australians, white New Zealanders, to show solidarity with those fighting a sort of on the front lines, as it were, in South Africa. And they were, you know... To a greater or lesser extent, they kind of all pushed in the same direction, although there were a great deal of divisions between them. I mean, the various kind of splits that they had with sort of figures like Eric Butler. It's again, it's transnationalism, not always a sort of like a harmonious affair. Each of these, Chesterton and Butler, were sort of like fighting with one another to carve out their own little fiefdoms at the expense of each other. You know, there's only a limited number of subscribers to some of these organizations. But again, you find kind of like quite close links to on a personal level as much as an organizational level. You had sort of people like Rose. Resistance from the National Front in Australia coming to the UK quite often, sitting in on court cases involving British activists, some of whom then relocated to Australia afterwards. So you do have this vibrant movement of people. A lot of these folk regularly sort of wintered in South Africa, Chester included. They had personal connections, family connections. So you did have this broader web based on Britain's ex-colonial colonies that kind of helped sort of this movement to become more transnational. And I guess some of those links probably still exist to this very day. You know, some of these activists are still alive. They're very elderly now, but their kind of transnational connections have been passed on through the movements that they've led, you know, sort of introducing each other to new generations of activists. So it's, it's an important dimension. I mean, it's not the perhaps the most important, the, you know, the local and the national remains as important as the transnational. But I think the transnational impact has been somewhat underplayed. I mean, it's coming to the fore now. I mean, you know, this is not something I've discovered. Plenty of very, very good books on transnational right-wing extremism and fascism. But I think that people are now paying more attention to it than they did, say, 10 years ago. I understand that, uh, I think in the 1930s, Mosley remarked that 
uh, Australia had uh, spontaneously developed a very efficient form of fascism, which was, I think, a reference to the, uh, among other things, the white Australia policy, which for most of the 20th century was official government policy. Did the white Australia policy, does that emerge in your studies of these figures and movements? Not so much insofar as like as it emerges in the, as a theme in the book, but I mean, you certainly see in kind of contemporary publications that, you know, this white Australia policy, South African apartheid, white supremacy in Rhodesia, you know, these are certainly things that are looked upon as things to be supported and perhaps models for the future. You know, it's very much something that Tyndall takes a great deal of pride of, I mean, or pride in rather. I mean, whether or not he models their policies explicitly on those national policies in Australia, I don't necessarily know, but he's certainly, you know, you can tell that it's in part of his kind of ideological cosmology. Were he ever to ascend, uh, that he would have certainly been quite interested in something very similar, like a whites-only kind of immigration policy for the UK. I mean, he was never in a position to implement anything like that. But you you see it crop up from time to time in episodes of uh, various publications as something that they would like to institute, you know, compared to what they see as an immigration policy in the UK that is basically flooding the country with racial undesirables, etc. You know, something they're very much against for obvious reasons. And I think it was in your account of, I'm not sure if it was uh, uh, Lease or Jordan perhaps, but there's a reference to an Australian figure called Mills who was an Odinist. And apparently he was responsible for introducing the concept of Odinism to one of those characters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's an interesting figure. I mean, he sort of, I think for many years, people didn't really notice that it was this, I mean, obviously, Alexander Rudd Mills is kind of well known, but I think because he was operating in the UK under a slightly different name, I say slightly different name, he used the sort of pseudonym Tasman Forth. And that was how he was referred to in a lot of these uh, publications. People didn't really necessarily make the connection of it was the same guy. But yeah, he was very much, I suppose there's that presumption that a lot of the influences on the British extreme right are solely from like fascist Italy or Nazi Germany, if you like. But you know, you have someone like Rudd Mills come in from Australia and actually have quite a sort of large influence on the ideas of racial Odinism, which hadn't been a big thing. I mean, it's still not a big thing in the UK compared to maybe the US. But you see this kind of influence coming in from Australia admittedly only sort of like on a very small section of activists the majority were still sort of you know far more christian than they were pagan but you can see him sort of having this uh, influence through various kind of like little pagan nordic societies that he founds with members of lisa's organization and again i think that kind of causes something of a split in the uk because within this movement because there's a section that is kind of heavily christianized you know they're sort of they see christian religion as like the bulwark against judaism not some variant of racial paganism so yeah yeah i mean it's a kind of it's an interesting kind kind of connection and it's interesting also that that starts in the 1930s because it's often again seen as something that's a very sort of post-war phenomenon. One question I had in particular was in regards to Colin Jordan. You note that upon his death, he left an estate worth an estimated a million, one million pounds. And I was wondering how did someone, because generally these figures are, well, with the possible exception of uh, Mosley perhaps, were if not poverty stricken, then constantly uh, scrambling for money. How did Jordan end up with uh, such a sizable estate? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I dug the uh, copy of the will out of the registry office and was you know quite surprised myself. I suspect, I mean, I, I'm speculating here, I suspect his property, both the property that Arnold Lease left him back in the 1950s from his legacy, and then also, you know, Lease was left sort of money by Henry Hamilton Beamish, the founder of the Britons, the organisation that kind of was producing copies of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion from sort of 1919 until it kind of folded its doors in the early 1980s. 
80s. I mean, I suspect also some of the money came from personal property, you know, like stuff that his mother and father had bequeathed him and maybe other relatives. But I mean, it, the, the documents themselves don't really detail where the money came from. But I suspect that's it because I don't imagine he would have made a vast fortune from within the movement. You know, sort of his own newsletter, Gothic Ripples, had a fairly limited circulation within the far right. So, yeah, that's all I really can say on that sort of score. I mean, there's obviously the, there was a supposition in the earlier period that he got a lot of his money from his ex-wife, Francoise Dior. But again, I don't think that's actually factually accurate. I think there was very little money involved. And from what I can gather of the NSM and documents I've seen, photographs of the headquarters, it was clearly not a sort of a financially well-off movement. So I, don't, I think Jordan made his money elsewhere. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Graham Macklin about failed furors. At various points throughout the book, anti-fascists pop their heads in to make some interventions. Uh, What effect do you think that the actions of people associated with, for example, the 62 group had on the development of post-war fascism in the UK? Sure. I mean, it's something I've not really... I mean, my focus was clearly on these kind of like six figures. So, I mean, it's kind of written in a way to ex- that doesn't really engage with some of those broader forms of opposition that sort of, again, helped shape the movement. I think that's kind of a valid criticism of the work itself. But as you say, I mean, people do pop in, in and out of the book. And yeah, I think, you know, it's kind of kept groups like the 62 group, you know, the anti-Nazi league, anti-fascist action in the 1990s. I mean, I think they've not only served as a kind of like a sort of source of intelligence on what people knew about those groups at the time, but I mean, I think also, you know, you can debate the rights and wrongs of their direct action approach. But I think what it did serve to do is to keep these movements on the back foot, particularly the smaller neo-Nazi ones, because they couldn't physically operate in many cases without, you know, being assaulted at meetings or on their way to meetings. And, you know, Jordan's a prime example of that. His kind of footsteps were dogged almost every way by various anti-fascist groups. And so, yeah, I mean, I think they have had a powerful role in sort of shaping them in one way or the other, either making them more angry, perhaps. But where that's led, it doesn't appear to be very clear. But I think kind of clearly sort of disrupting their ability to politically organise has been a very real impact on them. They've not been allowed at any point really in the UK to sort of operate unfettered by opposition. And sometimes that's been more or less effective, but it's clearly there as an influence. And it wasn't, as I say, it wasn't the main theme of my book, but I think, yeah, clearly you can kind of like see it as something that's from the the 1920s onwards, there's always been sort of a fairly fierce, competitive opposition to the forces of the British extreme right. Many of the publications you cite had what seems to be quite limited circulation. And when I read that, it makes me think of the contemporary scene and the ways in which uh, new technologies like the internet make uh, similar kinds of material instantly available to a vast audience. At the same time, as you note, that the British fascist groups are in a, in terms of organisational infrastructure, are are declining. And it seems to be that there's a kind of, well, I guess the question is, what do you see as being the relationship between this arguably uh, much more prevalent or uh, increased circulations of these kinds of ideas at the same time as there's this organisational malaise? Yeah, I mean, that's a really very interesting question. It's not really one I'm sure I have the answer to. But like you say, I mean, these, I mean, most of my, the majority of my book is based on kind of obscure movement publications with maybe a couple, couple of hundred people subscribing to some of these newsletters. Some of the newspapers obviously had sort of circulations of thousands when these groups were in their peak during the 1970s and 2000s. But yeah, I mean, nowadays, I mean, it's 
so much easier. The click of a button, you can pretty much find anything. And you don't even have to be looking at Nazi telegram sites. You can often find this stuff just on Amazon or even, you know, just through your mainstream bookshop. You know, I think it was Waterstones was selling copies of Breivik's manifesto the other day until it was pointed out to them. So you really don't have to go far to find the sort of material that, you know, even 30 years ago, you'd have actually really had to try very hard to dig out. And particularly sort of material telling you how to make improvised munitions, all sorts of stuff that you would have struggled to find is now just there at the stroke of a button. And so I suppose in a sense, whilst you have this organisational decline at the moment, you also have a rise in, trying to think of a term, sort of informational warfare. So, you know, lately these groups are just pumping out stuff in the vain hope that somebody picks it up. So you have lots of memes on Telegram that are just, you know, pictures of guys like Timothy McVeigh, Breivik, Tarrant, and just, you know, simple sort of captions saying, you know, who needs a group? And that, I suppose, is part of that environment that some of these groups are trying to create. You know, they understand that there isn't really a mass organization anymore. You know, the, the period for mass organization in the UK has kind of disappeared, at least sort of, you know, electoral um, organization. And they're now entering a sort of maybe not a post-organizational period. I think that's a little bit too strong because I think groups still matter. But they're able to push out this sort of material very much with the idea that someone will pick it up and it doesn't have to be someone they know, you know, sort of that many of these kind of like um, channels, telegram channels are basically blind networks, as a colleague of mine said, Ben Leah, you know, they don't have to know who's picking up these, this information, they don't care who's picking up this information, but it's meant sort of as inspirational. So they've sort of shifted back to that move that they don't have to actually sort of organize anything, but they can seek to use these ideas to inspire people to loan actor terrorism. And I think that's a, I think that's a definite shift in the move. Movement, or at least within right. the section of the movement. You know, it's not fair to sort of say that all of these kind of like far right guys are sort of proto terrorists. I don't think that's the case at all. But, you know, within a section of the movement, there is definitely a sort of a shift towards promoting violence as the sort of the aim beyond all others. One example that springs to mind is uh, Britain First, which I think had an, uh, a larger number of likes and follows on Facebook, not Telegram, uh, than almost any other. British political party, and yet they'd struggle to find or wouldn't attract more than a few dozen people to their in real life events. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, they sort of had quite a sophisticated online operation, particularly sort of through Facebook and the like. But yeah, like you say, you know, their demonstrations would be a handful of people. But, you know, again, with the sort of like they, they would be very good at generating an enormous amount of newspaper coverage for demonstrations that, you know, 20 years ago wouldn't have merited a headline in a national paper. But certainly, you know, maybe, maybe not even in a local newspaper, you know, such was the scale of it. But now they're sort of, you know, national news events, partially because of the way they're able to position themselves online. We have this uh, organisational decline, arguably, a formal, a formal organisation. At the same time, it seems that in recent years, we've witnessed the emergence of a whole range of different figures who are principally media figures mm. who've been able to cultivate quite an audience. And I wonder in that context, I mean, you examine what you describe as the crepuscular nature of the British uh, far right and its limited organisational capacities. And yet at the same time, these ideas have perhaps, you know, arguably an outsized influence on the mainstream and the borders between the mainstream and the fringes seem to be, especially in online environments, quite porous. So I'm wondering if you could comment a little on that. I suppose particularly sort of... <laughs> I mean, my book looks really at this all like the, the sort of arc of racial nationalist organization, which you're kind of seeing very much in, in abeyance at the moment, but with the sort of like, for the anti-Muslim, anti-Islam kind of activists, you're seeing, I suppose, a definite seepage into the mainstream. You see stuff that kind of like, 
I don't know, 10, 15 years ago would have been regarded as extreme, kind of appearing as kind of puff pieces in national newspapers. I mean, I think some of that's fueled by the hostile political environment towards migration that's been sort of at the background of British political debate for the past 10 years, you know, fueled by Brexit. It's fueled, you know, by the pandemic too. You're seeing kind of like things emerge in more mainstream spaces that you would not have imagined seeing sort of some time ago. You know, I mean, this is not to say they haven't appeared in mainstream politics before, but, you know, you kind of definitely witnessed something of these narratives going into a period of abeyance sort of 10, 20 years ago. But now immigration is back at the forefront of the political agenda. I think that's enabled a lot of these medias, you know, coupled with sort of modern technology to almost survive the collapse of organization and exist almost sort of as free-floating kind of like say media figures you know all of these technologies periscope facebook live etc have all enabled them to really become the media which was their sort of principal aim and in a sense you know kind of like there's just the very digital architecture of the internet lends itself to that kind of stuff anyway if you're good at marketing yourself then you're going to stand out from your peers maybe even the movements that you sort of were originally a part of a few of those uh, sort of media figures that you refer to might be uh, Lawrence Fox, who's just started the Reclaim Party, and Nigel Farage, who's just rebranded Brexit as Reform UK. I just wonder, could you tell us what the heck is going on with these guys? <laughs> probably not, really. I mean, I'm probably not the best witness to that because it's not something I've been following very closely beyond kind of, you know, what I've read in the papers like everyone else. But, I mean, I think... I think it's interesting that they're sort of filling that space, you know, that sort of like was vacated by Brexit, you know, um, or sort of Brexit caused sort of to be vacated because once kind of groups like UKIP and the Brexit Party had achieved what they wanted, or rather what they wanted was achieved for them by the Conservative government, there wasn't really any need for them. But then you have, I guess, a section of activists and actors who are looking to find a role. So, you know, I'm not surprised to see that Nigel Farage has kind of rebranded yet again. I mean, where that, I mean, I only read about this this morning in the Telegraph. I mean, where that actually takes him, I don't don't really know but i mean i don't think it's going to take him to the house of commons and yeah i suppose the reform party is kind of or the reclaim party sorry is a sort of symptom of kind of that segment of activists who seem very keen to be fighting the culture war um even though i'm not sure that there's a great deal of appetite for that in british politics i mean clearly there is amongst a segment of people but i don't really see where that's where that's going to take them I think they will end up sort of transforming into something slightly different if they are seeking genuinely to have political power. And again, I don't really see that as an outcome of what they're doing. I think it's more kind of, you know, on the sort of level of political agitation around ideas. I don't see it being sort of something that's necessarily going to be politically successful. But again, you know, I'm just kind of speculating. Historians are always better at looking backwards and forwards, so I don't expect to be right on any of this. Oh, maybe a failed furious too in 20 years' time. There'll be a lot, <laughs> lot more diving into Billy Piper's tweets and a lot less of the Searchlight Archive. <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> well, Graham, we'll leave it there. Um, I'm not going to ask you to make a prediction about the election, which has uh, already happened by the time this has gone to air, as funny as I think it would be for us to all try. <laughs> but we don't even have the option to just say every possible outcome and then edit it out. So we'll just leave it there. Uh, you can find you on Twitter at, at Macklin underscore GD. And the book, of course, is out through Routledge. Thanks very much for joining us, Graham. No, oh, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, Andy, that's all we've got time for. Global Intifada is up next. We'll catch you next week. See you then.
enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter.